good morning and welcome to our live broadcast at First Presbyterian. It is a joy to come into your home today with good news about God who loves you. If you're ever in Uptown Columbus, we invite you to stop by and say hello. We'd love to see you, have you worship with us. We'll make you feel like family. At First Presbyterian, we are family. Learning together, growing together, worshiping together. first reading this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, and before I read this, a little background to help us kind of know what's happening here. Uh, Elijah has just had this amazing mountaintop experience where he's defeated the prophets of Baal. And in so doing, he has made the queen, Jezebel, very angry at him. And so he flees for his life. And he finds himself holed up in the back of this cave, depressed and lonely. So that's the context in which we read this. And we invite all those that are able to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Starting in verse 11. He said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Also you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nim, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, as prophet in your place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm going to invite those who are able to please stand for our second lesson, and it comes from Acts, beginning in the first verse of the 18th chapter. Listen now to the Word of God. And after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And there he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. 
Paul went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they worked together. By trade, they were tent makers. And every Sabbath, he would argue in the synagogue and would try to convince Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with proclaiming the word, testifying to the Jews that the Messiah was Jesus. When they opposed and reviled him in protest, he shook the dust from his clothes and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And then he left to the synagogue and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the official of the synagogue, became a believer in the Lord, together with all his household. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul became believers and were baptized. One night, the Lord said to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will lay a hand on you to harm you, for there are many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Now, if you were listening earlier and heard the story that uh, Reverend Sauter rendered, and then you heard what you have just heard from Acts, some of you may be going, how do those two stories connect? Well, now I've got you hooked. You have to listen to find out how that connection takes place, and it will come. But for the moment, I want you to think about a few mountaintop experiences in your life. They could be spiritual, from a great sermon, from a conference, uh, from some just great time of fellowship with the Lord, or it's, it's okay, you can think of some sort of secular event. When I was doing a list of, of some mountaintops, I thought back to a trip to France that I took in high school with a group of people um, from, from, from my high school. That was a great experience. And after you think of some mountaintops, I want you to think about some valleys. Again, this could be a, a time, maybe you had a dark night of the soul, a season in life and you felt very separated from God. But also it could be something like the loss of a parent. It could be a, a time of disappointment or discouragement, a time when you're trying to kind of figure out the next step and it seems like you're barely going one step in front of the other uh, because it's just so dark around you. Now, with in mind some of these mountaintops, just a couple of them, and a couple of valleys along the way, now think a minute how much of your life, the percentage of your life, is spent on the high and the low, and how much of your life is spent in between. Now again, you may have some rises and some dips along the way, but I suspect that for most of us, the majority of our lives is spent on the plains in between. Again, with those valleys and those dips, I mean those dips and those rises along the way, but that is probably where the majority of our life is spent. The path, the journey of Christian discipleship is lived not so much in the joys of mountaintops and perseverance in the valleys as it is lived on the plains. Again, that flat space between the mountaintops and valley lows, and again, along the way, small rises, 
small hills, dips, small gullies. But essentially, we live life day to day with all its small ups and all its small downs, and we seek to faithfully go forward one step at a time, one day at a time. Acts 18 gives us a window of insight into life on the plains. Other chapters in Acts give us mountaintop vistas and valley views, dramatic developments along the way. There is Pentecost, explosive church growth takes place, and miracles follow. And Stephen preaches while he is on trial, and he is stoned to death as the first Christian martyr. Paul is converted, and we have the early days of his ministry. Peter is in prison. Paul is in prison. Dramatic deliverances take place. Believers are beaten. There are disappointments and disagreements. There's a council. Later, there will be a storm at sea and a shipwreck on an island. But Acts 18, it's just not that kind of chapter. <laughs> it, it's there. It's there on the plain. So today I want to look at this one window, about four windows in the chapter. I want to look at this one window and see what does it tell us about Christian or Christian discipleship, one day at a time, between the highs and the lows, and living on the plains. After this, it begins, Paul goes to Corinth after a time in Athens. And that's what Reverend Hasty spoke about last week. That, that was a dramatic high, I would think. He is there speaking in this great intellectual center with centuries of wisdom and knowledge, and they know it, behind them. And there he is speaking in the open forum where, where people could present ideas. In a way, it's like his blog has hit the million, million reader mark. His Twitter feed is all over the place. He has some thousands upon thousands of likes on his Facebook page, and uh, people are checking out his web page. I mean, this day is how Paul would have communicated if you were alive today. He would have a blog and a Twitter feed and a Facebook page and all of that. Well, he has had a chance to hit it big, and some have sneered. Some have said, well, we'll hear of this later. And I take it that they were actually intrigued. They weren't convinced but they were intrigued and were willing to hear him again. And some actually believed. And that's the basic response you're going to get when the claims of Christ are presented. Some will sneer. Some will be intrigued and want to hear more. And some will believe. It was a bit of a mixed, I would say, response that he got in Athens. And then he comes to Corinth. Now, let me give you a slight, small geography lesson here about Corinth. There is the, big, the mainland of Greece, if you see in the, you know, the, the zigzaggy coastline. There is a big, it almost might think it's an island at first, at the southern part of Greece, the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And what connects it to the mainland is an isthmus, and that is where Corinth is located. And all of the north south traffic goes through there. A lot of people live south of Corinth. There's a lot of trade and commerce. It's all got to go through the city. And on either side, there are ports. And because of the, what the weather and conditions are like along the southern coast of the Peloponnesian Peninsula, for many ships it's easy to simply go to one port, 
drop off the goods, pick up some more and go back. Or if it's a small boat, there's a canal that will take it to the other side. Or even a tramway pulled by slaves will pull the boat to the other side. There is a lot of commerce and a lot of people connected with commerce and transportation brought to the city. My image to a degree is of, of Atlanta today with the interstate system, 85 and 75 and 20, and all that is connected through that system there. This is a new city. There was an ancient city of Corinth that was destroyed around 150 B.C. In about 50 B.C., uh, a new city was built. It's about 100 years old at this point, just because we're talking about 50 A.D. that this is taking place. For that piece, for that time and place in the world, 100 years is nothing. It's almost like going up to Atlanta and on 85 south of Noonan, finding a subdivision, and they're there. It's like two years ago, wasn't that a field? So think of Corinth as something like, nothing against the folks settling in Noonan, nothing against them. They may be watching TV now, but it's just, it's new. It's very new. It's not established. Uh, it's not been around. It's not as old as, say, Savannah. So as a lot of new city, not really deeply rooted, many people from all over. I would not be surprised if native Greeks, if they were not a large minority, they were a small majority. Many people, beliefs, systems are there. There was an intellectual base. They see themselves as a rather cosmopolitan and well-informed city. They even have their own games, the Isthmian games that took place every two years. Unlike the Olympics, which took place every four years, they've got their own games. They've got their own major league baseball and basketball and uh, football. Um, all the teams are there. They've got it all. And it is to that place that he comes. But there's one more thing to know. Corinth has a very bad reputation. I'm thinking of some port cities. I'm thinking of Amsterdam uh, that have some sort of shady bits to them. There was actually in Greece, and I don't know if in modern day Greek if this is the, the situation, but there was a verb called to act the Corinthian, which was a genteel way of saying something I really can't say on television uh, at this time, uh, was basically what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, and it was kind of the Las Vegas of the day. In fact, an illustration I gave the early service that came to me, imagine Savannah with all of its tradition and its heritage and uh, its gentility. And then imagine a flashy Las Vegas. Okay? And Paul has basically gone to Vegas. And that is where he is. And what a challenge. To me, I would think it'd be very overwhelming uh, and even maybe discouraging to talk about the Lord in a place like that. But the more as I was doodling notes, I pondered. I thought, well, you know, what about the history of this church? Founded in 1830, just two years after Columbus is chartered, this was the wilderness. This was just timber. I mean, I don't, 1828, I mean, there might have been trees standing where we are now. I mean, it may have been just huddled just a few blocks south of us. On the edge of territory, two, two jurisdictions next to each other, this was a port city. As you know, the ships could come up to here, no further. And so this was a gateway to the world for farmers in this area. 
And I believe in the own church's record says people of all kinds of conditions were found in this area, a rather genteel way of saying, Lord have mercy. That's some riffraff in this, in this neck of the woods. I'm loosely translating the uh, 18th of 1800s language, but I think it might be accurate uh, to say that's what some of our, our, the forefathers and foremothers of this church were thinking. But maybe there's some parallels even to this place. But that is where now Paul finds himself to spend a block of time. And along the way, in what could have been a very discouraging, even challenging place, the Lord gives him gifts, gifts that we need ourselves as we spend time on the plains. He gives him the encouragement of friends. He has the new friends that he finds in Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila is the gentleman, Priscilla is the wife. And you might be wondering, what brings you to Corinth? He is actually from northern Turkey. Pontus is, is northern modern-day Turkey. Well, they were expelled from Rome as the Emperor Claudius that kicked the Jews out of Rome. Uh, modern-day historians point that to around 49 A.D. But the Roman historian Suetonius references the expulsion. He says, there was rioting at the instigation of Crestus, Christ. And that was why the Jews were kicked out. At this time, in the eyes of the Roman authorities, Christianity is simply a little subgroup within Judaism. And so when there are, there are riots or roughhousing or something going on, the Roman authorities see it as an in-house squabble. And they like a nice, peaceful empire. So imagine, you go in a parent mode, you're driving. And children are having this major disagreement in the back seat. And quite frankly, you don't care who started it. You don't care whose fault it is. And you don't care to adjudicate through all 15 steps of what happened and who did what to whom to get to the conclusion. Well, we're not going to throw them out of the car. But what we do, at least what I will do, I'll simply say, be quiet. I don't want to hear anything. You look out this window, you look out that window. I don't want to hear a peep until we get home. And goodness knows, I was in the back seat being told the same thing back in the day. So basically, Claudius has said, I just don't want to hear about it. Just get out of the city, okay? <laughs> Settle amongst yourselves. For the cause of Christ, um, though, these two people have also suffered. They, they've lost their home, and they have gone to, to Corinth. It's a good place to make a living. They are trained in tent making, as is Paul, and the word could also mean leather working. So I also have this image of Paul making leather belts, maybe going to a craft fair or a flea market to sell them. Uh, it could have happened. Um, he is doing that. He has got this connection uh, with, with people. He's got the friends, and then new friends come along in terms of Timothy and Silas. Now, this relationship with Priscilla and Aquila will continue. They will later go on to, to Ephesus, and eventually they will end, end up in Rome before it's all over as we look at other parts of Scripture. So this is a new friendship that becomes a lasting friendship. But then he has his old friends as well, Timothy and Silas, who arrive. We have Timothy, his um, protege, um, his mentee, the man into whom he's pouring his life. These are comrades in arms. And they are there to be alongside him. 
Several weeks earlier, I preached from Acts 9, and I talked about the power of a posse, the power of a network of friends. Examples I gave of Ananias in Damascus, who basically he and Paul would consider each other enemies until Paul was blinded on the road to Damascus. And the Lord told Ananias, you are the one to go lay hands on him and heal him. Later disciples in Damascus get Paul out of the city when he is being threatened, his friends there. Paul goes to Jerusalem and nobody will return his messages until Barnabas, the son of encouragement, comes alongside, gives him the right hand of fellowship, and introduces him to others. And then friends in Jerusalem later get him out of the city when once again he is in trouble. And then I also made reference in that message to Paul and Timothy, that relationship of a mentor and a mentee that we need. And I spoke then of how you could be called to be a friend to others, as well as it may be a challenge to reach out to someone to whom you have not been, to whom you have not had a relationship in the past. Comrades in arms, friends are what we need when we are along the plains. Those that will hear us and even challenge us and encourage us. On Thursday, I was in Albany for the Committee on Preparation for Ministry. And on my way back, and I've got Bluetooth in my car, it's great, uh, I called a friend. And a lot's going on in his life right now. He's transitioning into a good place. And we spent about an hour on the phone, uh, talking with him, driving through the countryside, um, saying, you know, how is it going? What are the next steps you'll be taking? How can I pray for you? Friday, I had an opportunity to, to go to Auburn and had early morning coffee with an old friend catch up with him. About once a year, he and I have a coffee date. And uh, then later went to an early lunch in Alexander City. Uh, met a pastor from Birmingham. He and I are in the same covenant, pastor's covenant group. So it was a good chance to, to catch up with him. About two and a half hours, we talked. Uh, what's going on? How can I pray for you? Uh, a little bit of challenge, a little bit of encouragement. Good to have those comrades along the way. The Lord gives us friends and the Lord gives us work to do and a work to do. Initially, Paul, with this group of new friends, they're making tents. And we make it assume even some basic leather goods. He is there working with them, making the belts, making the tents. He is doing a bit of work. But soon, very soon, Paul is speaking in the synagogue. And with the arrival of Timothy and Silas, Paul has more opportunity to speak. And once again, his own people oppose him. And Paul goes to the home of Titius Justus, a Gentile worshiper of God, a God-fearer. And the work continues. And the ruler of the synagogue ends up becoming a believer himself along with his household. And others form a Christian community there, a success. For us, in terms of a work and a work to do, we have our own occupations, our own zones of influence and how we conduct ourselves. For students, if you're in middle school, your job, your ministry is to study. Did you know that? Students out there, God's will for you is to study. God's will for you to do your homework, okay? Because that is God's calling on your life now to be a student. In your workplace, the people that you influence, how you treat them, how you regard them, 
That is a ministry. That is a place where you can make an impact. And the particular places where you find yourself, whether it be on the, on the soccer field, that's always a good reminder, or the baseball field, um, often cheering on your child in a team. Sport can often be a good opportunity for, for ministry. We have those as well as the ones that we highlight, like again, next week, opportunity to pack meals. People that pack sack lunches here, VIP, um, the youth going on the trips in the summer, our time that some of us spent have spent in Russia over the last uh, several years. These are other ways in which we have to serve day in, day out. Jail ministry, another one. So often it's been a work and the work that God calls you to do, and that can be a form of encouragement, doing what needs to be done. And even in these few verses, we see Paul having a mountain and a valley. He's preaching, it's going well. He's having problems, it's not going well. He gets able to move next door, and people are joining. He's doing well again. But then what followed, and I didn't even catch this until I prepared for this particular sermon. I mean, all these years, this passage never stood out to me in Acts. Didn't even know it was in Acts, quite frankly. I'm just going to confess it honestly to y'all. I knew about him being a tent maker, but I did not know what followed here in verse 9. One night the Lord said to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, but speak and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you to harm you. But there are many people in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Do not be afraid. I am with you. There are many people in this city who are my people. There's a network. And the encouragement led Paul to stay there 18 months. And the church grew. Now, as a sidebar on a lighter, lighter note, we learn from Scripture of some of the people in this church, and one was a man named Erastus. That happens to be my first name. On a more serious note, as we look elsewhere in Scripture, the church grows, but this church, they've got some problems, y'all. That's why we have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians and what we call 13 about love is patient and love is kind, he wasn't telling the Corinthians that because, hey, y'all are doing a great job. He was telling them that because y'all need to learn how to love. Love is patient, love is kind. These are the things you need to do. It wasn't an encouragement. It was a challenge uh, for them. This church had problems. I think it may actually go in records being the most screwed up church uh, in the New Testament, quite frankly, in terms of the issues that they had going on amongst them of immorality and bickering and people doing charges against each other and taking each other to court and not caring for one another. There's that first Corinthians where he basically takes them to task. He speaks with them. They reject him. There's a second letter, which is lost. Uh, he makes reference to it and it's never been found. They do then repent and come back. And 2 Corinthians is actually a third letter in which he is celebrating their repentance and answering questions they have along the way. I'm sure it was a very dramatic relationship with these people, but in between, as he is doing other things, he is living his life on the plane. 
But let me get back now to this vision. As I read it in Acts, I said, I'm having a deja vu. I've heard something like this before. And that's when I went back to the section in 1 Kings. Now, I told you I make the connection, and I'm making that connection now. There is Elijah in what must have been literally and figuratively a mountaintop experience. He is on the mountain, and he's got the prophets of Baal over here and telling the folks, okay, it's either Yahweh or Baal, make your pick. And the prophets of Baal get the first shot. They've got an altar, let Baal bring down the fire, and they dance around and they run around and they just do all kinds of stuff. And he even jokes with him and says, call louder, he might be taking a potty break. But then he has his chance, waters down even the, 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 the wood and fire comes down. He's got the victory, people see for sure. And then old Jezebel calls down on him. Now, those of you of a certain age can remember using that phrase, she's a Jezebel, was a genteel way of saying she was not a nice person in a very big way. A lady could say that and remain a lady in reference to somebody who wasn't a lady because she was a Jezebel. And even when you say it, Jezebel, you just know she's up to no good. Think about it. And she said, I'm going to get you, boy, that's the last thing I do. And he runs, and he's depressed after this great mountaintop. He is depressed. And the Lord speaks to him then. And he says, I mean, he says, I've done everything. I've done this. I've done this. And the Lord says, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. He gives him a job to do. First, he says, I'm there with you. He says, where are you? I'm here with you. And he gives him a job to do, to anoint someone to follow. Later in verse 19, Elisha will be brought into the life of Elijah, a protege for him, someone to whom he can invest his life. And he's also reminded, I will leave, the Lord says, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. He's reminding him, you are not alone. I do have people who belong to me in your land, just like Paul was reminded about Corinth. A work to do and work to do and comrades for the journey. And guess what? More people belong to the Lord than you just might think. Today, the Holy Spirit is at work here in this city on a river, a place with an interstate and two federal highways and several state highways and rail lines where they all converge where businesses and binning bring people from all over the world, all to our city. And at times it can seem overwhelming and discouraging as we see the needs about us. But Jesus told us, I am with you always, even to the end of the ages. And God the Father is at work. And we have comrades among ourselves and elsewhere in this city Again, the, it's kind of good you're here today, the prison ministry, and, and you usually worship at First Baptist. A reminder, there is a network here in town at work, and there is work to be done where we find ourselves day in and day out, as well as particular calls. This chapter of Acts is not all that dramatic. 
I've, I'll admit, despite everything I've put into this, is not the most dramatic chapter. It's really just about life lived on the plains. And we have our own high mountaintops and deep valley lows and incredible inspiration and on the mountaintop joys and dramatic growth in the valley. But again, most of our lives are lived on the plains. And what God has given us is each other. Comrades along the way, other comrades we have here in town, and God has given us work to do in our own particular city. Amen.